All right, like we said earlier, we're going to be in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. And that's going to be on page 825, if you're using a pew Bible there. That's page 825. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers, so that you can follow right along there with us. And if you don't have your own Bible, consider that our gift to you. Uh, And we hope that you read it and that you love it. So, we're in Galatians. And to this point, Paul has made an argument that he is a one true apostle of God, that he can speak authoritatively uh, to the one true gospel. And he's been arguing against those folks that we've identified as the Judaizers or the false teachers who have said, you know what, believing in Jesus is not enough for salvation. You also need to be Jewish and keep all these Jewish laws in order to really be saved. We've seen Paul say that's not the case, that Jesus plus nothing is everything, right? He says that salvation is by grace through faith. So faith alone is the crux of salvation. And so, he's been arguing in chapter 3. He said, don't you know this from experience, Galatians? You experienced it when you received the Spirit. Why would you start by the Spirit and then depart from that? No, no. You're also going to be completed and perfected by the Spirit of God. So then he moves on and says, just like Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, so here you just need to believe God and it will be credited to you as righteousness. Last week, we took a a look at how uh, we were under the law and imprisoned to sin. And he's kind of continued that argument. He also pointed out in 10 through 14, a couple weeks ago, uh, he made his argument from salvation history, from the cross, and said that Jesus became a curse for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, that he took our sin, that we might take his righteousness. And so it's by believing in him that we have life, which brings us all the way up to our verse for today. Now, there are two questions that I want you to consider this morning. One is, who are you? And the second is, what does that mean for you? Who are you? And what does that mean for you? We're going to let Paul's words in verse 26 of chapter 3 and in verse 7 of chapter 4 kind of serve as bookends for our discussion this morning because they both are very similar. One is kind of his thesis, and then the second is his thesis and kind of his conclusion and an inference. And so, look with me at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And then we see in verse 7 of chapter 4, he's going to restate it. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And here's the implication. And if a son, an heir through God. Paul's assertion is that those that have faith are sons of God. Maybe you've heard, you know, an implication of this is, is that, well, if those that have faith are sons of God, The inverse of that, the antithesis of that, the opposite of that would be that those that don't have faith are not sons of God. So maybe you've heard in our culture, I did anyway growing up, that we're all God's children. Well, this is well-intentioned, but but it's misinformed, right? It's a a fallacy. That's not not what the Scripture is telling us here, right? If you're not in Christ, you're not a child of God. In fact, Paul would call you in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we, all of us, when we're apart from Christ, are by nature children of wrath. And in Romans, he says that um, we are enemies with God prior to being reconciled to God. So we are not all children of God. No, the children of God are recognizable. They're identifiable because they have faith in Christ. We're going to see in verse 27 here that those that are in Christ... Put on Christ. 
Look, look what he says, verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the family of God, everyone dresses alike. We all have the same outfit. Put on Christ. Now this, this imagery, this metaphor is one of Paul's favorites. He loves to picture Christ like an article of clothing or a garment that we would put on. Let me, let me make it, maybe use an illustration here. Uh, imagine two kids out in the backyard playing, right? One has this mask on. He's got holes in the mask just for his eyes cut out. He's got one of those, a big black cowboy hat, a black shirt, like a little cape-looking thing, black pants and black boots. And you have another little boy, and he's got on a blue shirt, which is tucked into his blue pants, a belt, a little fake gun there on the side, and a badge that's shaped like a star on his chest. Now, they have clothing on, obviously. It's going to tell us something about them. If we, if we think about it, some of you are sitting there going, that's cops and robbers, man. I played that when I was a kid. The kid with the black and the eye holes, he's, he is the robber. And the kid with the, the star on his chest and the blue pants and the fake gun, he is the cop. Our clothes communicate something about us, right? This is true today, right? You go to the hospital, you can tell the doctors from the nurses, right? White coat, doctor. Scrubs, nurse. My sister's a nurse, which is a really, really scary now. Um, it makes me weary about going to hospitals. You don't know who's under those scrubs or, or who has that white coat on. You see, it's, it's true. I mean, if you go to Walmart, right, you can tell who the employees are by their clothes, right? They've got khakis in a blue-collared shirt. I actually made this mistake the other day. I wore khakis in a blue-collared shirt into Walmart, and uh, I had quite a few people ask me where things were. And, yeah, I'm, going, I'm having trouble enough trying to find it myself, but... <laughs> Let alone, I, I don't know, I can't help you. But see, the point here is that our clothes communicate something about ourselves. They identify us in some way. So too, believers are told to put on Christ. To wear Christ as a garment. So, what does this mean when we put on Christ? What, what does this communicate about us? I mean, Christ isn't, you can't go home in your closet and pull out a, a jacket and go, all right, this one is Christ, throwing it on today, obeying the command. Well, no, it's, it's a metaphor, and it's going to communicate something about us. So, to put on Christ is to say, I've got four things here. One is that our primary identity is in Christ. Our primary identity is in Christ. Not in any worldly classification, not that I am black or white or that I am a farmer or that I am a businessman but that I am in Christ. So if somebody asks me, you know, who are you? The first thing out of my mouth shouldn't, shouldn't be any of these classifications, but my first thought should be, I am in Christ. I am a Christian. So our primary identity is in Christ. Our clothes identify us as being in Christ. Secondly, it communicates the closeness of our relationship to Christ. Think about it. I don't often think about this. There is nothing that's actually kept closer to you than your clothing. No other possession is kept as close as your clothing. It's always there. It always serves as kind of shelter for your body at almost every moment. It goes with, uh, with you wherever you go, right? We rely on our clothes for a shelter from the weather almost every moment, right? If it's cold outside, you have a jacket on. Maybe you shed some clothes in the summertime, but you still have clothing there to pre- protect you, to shelter you. So to put on Christ as our clothing is to call us to a moment-by-moment dependence on Him 
as our shelter. It's an awareness of Christ being around us. It's being enveloped in Christ moment by moment. Thirdly, it's an imitation of Christ. Remember cops and robbers? They're imitating a cop and a robber based on their disposition, right? And Jesus, in the same way, we are to imitate him with our actions and our virtues as we try to walk out gospel holiness. We try to become and practice what he's declared us to be in truth by the power of his spirit. We try to live as Jesus lived. We try to be little, little Christs. We imitate him. Fourthly and lastly, it communicates our acceptability to God. The fact that we are accepted. You know, clothing is ultimately worn to cover our nakedness. And nakedness is, is associated with, with shame. If you remember in Genesis, Adam and Eve, they sin and they fall. And they're getting ready to get tossed out of the garden. And uh, God does something. He, he takes an animal and he kills it. He makes clothing out of it. And he clothes Adam and Eve. He covers their nakedness. He covers their shame. So too Christ is killed that our nakedness and our shame might be covered. That we might wear him as a garment. We are acceptable to God on the basis of Jesus' work. He is our salvation. So we must exchange our bloody, filthy garments for the perfect, righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And it's in putting on these clothes that we look just like everyone else in the family of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek. This is verse 28. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul here is, is saying that we are diverse in the family of God, but we're unified in the family of God. That the Jew is no better than the Greek, and the Greek no better than the Jew, and the slave no better than the free, and the free no better than the slave. That the male is no better than the female, and the female is no better than the male. We're all united in Jesus. Equal. We all equally wear the garments of Christ. Therefore, these divisions that often come based on um, socioeconomic status, or gender, or work, or culture, or ethnicity, they shouldn't divide us. We shouldn't look down on another because they're different from us. Because we're all united in Christ. We all equally need to exchange our dirty garments for his clean garments. And when someone puts on Christ, how could you look down on them? How could you look down on somebody that is in Jesus Christ? That is indeed your brother, your sister. Therefore, these divisions should not uh, be divisive within the church. But we should be unified, even along the lines of our diversity. Paul here is actually maintaining the cultural distinctness of the Greeks, right? Part of Galatians is the Jews are saying to the Greeks, you got to be Jewish to be Christian. And Paul's saying, no, you can continue to be Greek and be a Christian at the same time. So some folks often use this verse. Uh, they try to rip it out of its context and make it say something that it doesn't. So I have to address that, sadly, um, but necessarily. So what they do is they, they take it out of their context, and a lot of times they'll go, what this means is that Paul is doing away with all distinctions. Typically, so that really there's no difference between men and women, for instance. Well, that's, that's not what Paul's saying. Remember, context is king when it comes to determining the meaning of the text, right? What the author wants to communicate. And so for Paul to say something along the lines as, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all are the same in Christ Jesus, is really different 
from him saying all are one in Christ Jesus, right? So he's saying that we are unified in Christ and that we maintain our diversity. Not that there are, we're all exactly the same. Yes, we're equal in value, but there are distinctions. Some of them not so good like slavery, which we're, we're going to catch up to in a second. But some of them are good distinctions. Like culture, right? You know, I don't want somebody to have to sacrifice their culture in order to, to be in Christ. It would be kind of really weird to, to go over to, to Africa and to tell the Africans, listen, your culture, you have to sacrifice it. You actually have to become uh, like us over here. Um, we're mostly white and rural people. And so uh, no, we're, we're probably not going to dance in church like y'all might. Um, we're not going to get as crazy with, with our ethnic songs. You need to give all of that up in order to be a Christian. And all of a sudden, we sound a lot like the Judaizers. We're not to be divided along those lines because we're unified in Christ. We can maintain our cultural identity, but our primary identity has to be in Jesus as we put on Christ as our garment. For example, Chelsea, Elliot, and I are all in the same family, right? We're all equally bronze. I don't know how good that is for you or, or not good for you, but we're all equally equally bronze in the same family. But within that family, we have different distinctions. I'm a husband. She's a wife. He's a baby. You know, we all have different distinctions. We're all equal. We're all equally bronze. But we're different. We're distinct. And those distinctions are okay. So too in the family of God. We're all equal under Christ's love as we put on the garment of Christ. We all equally need His righteousness. But we can maintain some of our distinctions. However, those distinctions are secondary to our primary identity, which is in Jesus. Paul is promoting unity among diversity. There is no difference between races, social strata, or gender. This is a theme in Galatians, is that we are unified in Christ Jesus. We cannot miss the radical social implications for the gospel here, that we are one in Christ Unified. Now, this one, the, the, the part about women being equal to men in Christ is actually really interesting. Because in Paul's day, women were considered to be second-class citizens, right? They were absolutely inferior to men. Which is part of the reason it's so shocking you find women at the tomb of Jesus because their testimony would have been unreliable by the day standards. And so what Paul does, if you want to backtrack with me a little bit, to make his point is in verse 26, if you notice, he says, um, all are sons of God. Y'all see that there? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He doesn't say sons and daughters. And some translations do bring it across as children of God. And and they do that to let you know that, yes, uh, women are included. The gospel is not sexist. But Paul is deliberate here in choosing the word sons. And if we change his language, we miss the radical nature of what he's saying. He's saying we're all sons because during that day, again, as I said, women are considered inferior. But what happens is, as Paul is saying, only the son inherits, right? In this culture, the only person that can become a legal heir is a son. You see what he's saying is, in Christ, all are sons. All inherit. He's elevating the status of women. And the same thing in in the verse we just read, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. He's saying we are equal in Christ. We are all legal heirs. 
Now, there is one more question we have to deal with before moving on. And that is, what is Paul's understanding of slavery? Is he calling for an abolition of it? Uh, if so, why does he elsewhere tell slaves, obey your masters and, and to be diligent in your work? What, what, what is he doing here? Well, firstly, I would say that Paul's primarily concerned with talking about unity in the gospel and being a respecter of persons and, and of the image of God. Um, however, I think uh, Timothy Keller will be helpful in analyzing this particular portion of Galatians. He says this, Paul's thesis in Galatians 3 is that this radical equality is for those who are in Christ. The implications in, for this in broader society are just that, implications. They have to work themselves out over many years. In the long run, this truth was bound to have an effect on how Christians lived in society at large. And Thomas Schreiner adds this, Paul did not call for the abolition of slavery, but encouraged believers to serve Christ in the way that they worked for their masters. And he admonished masters to treat their slaves fairly. Slaves should gain freedom if possible, but Paul was not greatly concerned about whether one is free or slave. What concerned him was whether one fulfilled their calling before God in whatever social situation they found themselves. The unity and the oneness that belonged to a slave and to a free in Christ then did not rule out the existence of slavery in Paul's day. Though such a teaching led to the eventual abolition of slavery as Christian teachings took hold in society, Paul, of course, never endorses slavery as a social system, although he does speak to it. Again, his concern is not the abolition of slavery, but the glorification of Jesus Christ in the unity among the diversities of his people, of the people that are in the family of God. The unity among those that, though different, have put on Christ, that have clothed themselves with Christ's righteousness. Let me ask you, in what area of your life do you struggle to put on Christ? Where are you finding some divisiveness, maybe based on socioeconomic status? Are there rich and poor among you? Are you intermingling or do you strictly stay to those that are of similar position in life? Do you divide based on race or culture? Maybe even gender for some of us. Do we look down on the other gender? How are these divisions prevalent in your life? How are you struggling to put on Christ in these areas? How can we tear down these things that would divide us in our own lives and in our church? Are you putting on Christ? Who are you? Paul now in verse 29 is going to kind of tie a thread together uh, for his main thesis for chapter 3. And he's going to put a little bow on it. And, And he's basically been saying this. Those that belong to the family of Abraham believe. And they inherit the promise of Abraham. He says this in verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's sons. You are his offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So union, being clothed with Christ... Baptism into Christ are all different ways of portraying the same reality. The heirs of Abraham are those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith. In other words, you've probably heard this a few times at this point, inheritance doesn't come by performance, but by promise. By the promise of God. It is His gracious gift. Hence, it is received by faith alone. This brings us to the conclusion of our first question. Hopefully you've arrived at an answer. Who are you? 
Are you a son? Are you an heir? Or are you an orphan outside of the grace of God? Have you put on Christ? Or are you wearing your dirty garments? Who are you? This leads us to our second question. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? But first, what's Paul mean by heirs, right? He's going to tell us in in chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, Paul's picking up on some imagery that we talked about last week. He brought up this idea of a guardian or a manager. Remember I said it's kind of like a babysitter? And so, uh, in ancient times, specifically in Roman times, there is this process or this idea of you coming of age. You come of age. And so, you would be an heir de jour rather than an heir de facto. That's to say, you would be an heir in the legal sense, but not an heir in fact. In other words, to, to simple it down, when you're a kid, you can't, you're, that's my inheritance, right? Like what your parents have, you're going to inherit that, it's going to be yours. But it's not yours yet. Not until you come of age in the society. And so they had clear delineations, it was a well-defined process. And, and a Roman child or a Roman heir was a minor until about the age of 14. And that was even then still under some degree of supervision until uh, they were about 25. It was then at 25 they could exercise complete independent control of the estate, of their inheritance. See, just as a slave has masters, the child, in in this context, would be under the care of guardians, managers, babysitters. They would be no different than the slave. They would have their freedom infringed upon, taken away, even though they're the rightful owner of everything. When they're children, they're the potential owner, but not the actual owner. You all see that? And so Paul's going to take this and he said, uh, just as the children of the estate is not really any different from a slave because he hasn't actually inherited yet, he's going to take it and apply it to us in verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Elementary principles of the world is a source of great debate and it's going to come up again in chapter 4. What does this mean exactly? Um, I'm just going to give you Paul's main point today. We'll talk about elementary principles later on down the road. But his main point is that all men are in spiritual slavery, that they worship created things rather than the creator, that we are all under the law, right? He's been saying that we're all slaves to sin. We're all orphans. And it comes to verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I love this language. In the fullness of time. That's just pregnant wording, isn't it? Like you know something big is about to happen. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Are you all ready for your word of the day? The the one that will impress your friends, uh, I guess it's a phrase, later in the week. And the one that will uh, probably confuse you at first, but I'm going to try and explain it. Well, what Paul is hinting at here is what theologians like to call the hypostatic union. That was a good one, huh? Hypostatic union. Not one you often hear from the pulpit. But this hypostatic union, it's just a fancy way of saying that God, the God-man, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. And so he's bringing this out. One, he's saying he's sent forth from God, right? The existence of Christ before all things. God the Father sends Jesus forth. He's always exists. Before Abraham was, I am, says Jesus. 
And he says, born of a woman. Which, you know, it's not really hinting at the virgin birth, but clearly he was born of a virgin. But born of a woman in the sense that he is fully human. He is uniquely the God-man. I like what Tony Morita says here. He says, this has confused everyone since the first century. Jesus, how old are you? Well, you know, on my mother's side, about 12. But on my father's side, eternal. Let me, let me, let me explain. You see, on my mother's side, I get hungry. But on my father's side, I'm the bread of life. You know, on my mother's side, I get thirsty. But on my father's side, I'm the living water. On my mother's side, I get tired, and I go to sleep on the boat. But on my father's side, I command the wind and the waves to be still. On my mother's side, I have no place to lay my head. But on my father's side, I own the earth and all therein. On my mother's side, I wept at Lazarus' tomb in grief. But on my father's side, I raised him from the dead. See, on my mother's side, I died on the cross in agony. But on my father's side, I was raised from the dead. There will never be another Jesus. He is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. He became a man so that he could act as the one true mediator between God and man. To broker a peace between us. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. Because we are more sinful than we ever dared believe. But also because we are more loved than we ever dared to hope. The God-man is unique. There will never be another one like Him. Why is Jesus the only way? Because He's unique. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And only He is worthy. Only He is qualified to adopt us as sons and as daughters. Only He is qualified, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the great exchange, right? Jesus takes our sins. We take His righteousness. The word redeem here is really interesting. It, it speaks to, in that culture, in that time, uh, you would redeem slaves. And so you would go to the slave owner, him or her, and you would pay or redeem the full price of the slave in order to, to purchase them. And so the language here that Paul is using is, is this. You are slaves and orphans. And Jesus comes and He redeems you. He purchases you. You see, the law here is the slave owner. And He purchases us from the law by living the perfect life and dying perfect death. He purchases us. He redeems us. And we move from slavery into sonship. It's like, it's not just He, he redeems us from our sins, right? He just doesn't just uh, forgive our sins. The slate's not just wiped clean, but He wipes the slate clean, and then where our sins were, He writes His righteousness. Maybe think of it this way. It's as if you were in prison and on death row, waiting to die, and Jesus then released you from prison. And not only were you released from prison, but then you went to the White House to have the President hang the Congressional Medal of Honor around your neck. You see, because all the heroic deeds that Jesus did when you put on Christ, when you have faith in Christ, when you believe the promise rather than your performance, are yours. 
That means that when Christ or when God looks at you, he sees his son. Therefore, he treats us as he treats his only son. It's as if you are as heroic, as beautiful, as wonderful as Jesus himself. You get the inheritance of a son. God sends His Son and also He sends His Spirit. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The Spirit testifies to our sonship in Christ, to our right to inherit. Remember, He says, you began by the Spirit, so you'll be perfected. By the Spirit. The Spirit is within us and it allows us to cry out to God as Jesus did in prayer Abba, Father. This is a very personal and intimate word. It means like Daddy. I can't wait till uh, one day Elliot's going to look at me and he's going to say, Maybe, I guess, Daddy. Maybe he'll say Pops or something like that. But it's going to be endearing. And I'm going to answer to him with the love of a Father. You know, I'm already kind of like at his beck and call. You saw my wife get up, had to take him out of here because he's in control right now. And it's not that we're in control of God. That's not what I want to communicate. What I, what I want to communicate is that he loves us like we might love our children. That he wants to fulfill our request. He wants to hear us. And we're able to talk to him as Jesus does. As daddy. Instead of shuddering at him, at his might, because he is the judge of the universe. Instead of cowering in fear, we can approach Him with confidence and with boldness because Jesus' blood has made us clean. Because we have put on Christ, we can call Him Daddy. We are sons, and therefore, corollary of being a son is being an heir. We inherit as Jesus inherits. This brings us to our second question. What does that mean for me? Who are you? What does that mean for you? Who am I? What does that mean for me? We're coming to the end here, but I do have a most difficult and hopefully stirring application for you this morning. I was, uh, I've been exponentially convicted by this text. If we have put on Christ, if we have faith in Christ, if we've been adopted by Christ, doesn't that follow that we should imitate Christ, we should be like Christ, that we should be little Christ. As He has redeemed us, does that not mean that we ought to try and redeem others? Not only in a spiritual sense by sharing the gospel, but should we not care for the fatherless, the widow? Should we not care for the marginalized, as Jesus did, and meet their physical needs? Specifically, with our own adoption, I want to challenge you this morning to be active and engaged in orphan care. Now, I'm not saying that all of you need to adopt children, though that would be wonderful. But I am saying there is a call on our lives to care for the fatherless. I pray that this morning this text would call you to all recognize your hopeless stance, your hopeless spiritual bankruptcy before God. And to recognize that there are many you know, I've seen many of you hold my child, and I've held him myself. And this week, every time I hold him, I look down on him, and I realize there are millions of children just like him, suffering. They don't have a father or a mother. 
They need adopted. Chelsea and I have had the privilege of seeing this beauty play out in our own lives. Our church in Wake Forest, before we came here, we were able to see a number of families do it, and we've been able to walk with them through the process a little bit. Um, One family in particular had an amazing story. You know, they set out to adopt a a younger child, but um, through a series of of the hand of God just working in their life, they met a a 16-year-old girl from the Ukraine, and they realized, this is our daughter. So they they continued to to cut through the red tape that often comes with adoption, and eventually uh, they were able to go through the process. They were ready to adopt her from the Ukraine. They spent countless hours, a ton of money, lots of suffering, lots of prayer to adopt her. They even on their way to the Ukraine to adopt her, you have to be there at a specific time in a specific place where they make it really hard to get your children. They're on their way there, and they even lost their passports, had them stolen while they were in Philadelphia, hours from home. Involved many politicians to get them to the Ukraine on time. They got a passport in less than 24 hours. They rode trains, they rode planes and automobiles, right? They did it all. And it wasn't just the two of them, it was their four children as well. Suffering, sacrificing, that they might bring who would now be their eldest daughter home. Upon their return home, Reagan wrote this of adoption. Quote, it's hard. It's so worth it. It's exquisite. And it's hard. End quote. Tom wrote the following of the process. Many sweet, kind people have tried to use logic to help us overcome the spiritual oppression and emotional pain here, he writes as they're there. I've been very convinced to pay attention to how we respond to someone who is hurting or uncomfortable with sadness or anger, and so we try to talk each other out of feeling those negative things. I just want to point out that Satan does not release his grip on us because it ought to make sense. Many things in this world should be and are not or should not be and are. If you were betrayed by a friend and someone said, at least you had a friend, would you be comforted? If you were sitting by the bedside of your mother while she died and somebody said, at least you had her as long as you did, would you cease to mourn? If your marriage ended and somebody said to you, at least you got out alive, would you cease to grieve the loss? If you spent every day for a month with social orphans whose parents live and yet do not come for them in a spiritually oppressed nation and somebody said, at least you saved one, would you forget the rest? I will never forget. And if it ever stops hurting, then shame on me because my eyes have been opened and it hurts. Friends, I hope this morning that we would have our eyes open. Not only to the fact that Christ has adopted us into that great joy, that we might rejoice in Him, that every spiritual blessing in Christ is ours. It's our inheritance that we are sons of God, that we can put on Christ and we can clothe ourselves with Jesus. But also to the fact, to the call on our lives to reach out to the marginalized with the gospel and also by meeting their physical needs, by caring for the poor, the fatherless, and the widow. I hope that you would have your eyes open this morning to the orphan, that you would pray for them, that you would care for them, and that some of us might even adopt them. Never forget that Jesus has adopted you and never cease to rejoice in that sonship. So who are you? 
What does that mean for you? Jesus said, truly, I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me also. The orphan has a face. It is the face of Jesus. Who are you? And what does that mean for you?